So let's hop into the verses. Again, this is chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 10 to 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to preach before you, Lord, and before these people, Lord. I pray that you would open up hearts and minds, Lord, that you would provide fertile soil, that it wouldn't be my words that would be heard, but it would be you speaking through me as a vessel. But I pray, Lord, that you would let my words and the meditations of my heart be holy and acceptable before you, my God and Father, in whom I trust. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. All right, so when preparing for this sermon, I listened to a few um, other sermons, and one popular evangelist tagged his message, Protect Your Peace. This focused on not letting you lose your peace and being determined not to let others who cause pain or hurt or disappointment make you lose your peace, but to continue on in joy. The main reference he used in that passage was a reference to having a spare tire in case you hit those potholes in life. But the sad thing here is this analogy is actually often how we treat God as a spare tire. Turning only to him when we're down or out or need something. When there is so much more to God. Not only keeping him in the trunk and out of sight, but he should be in the foregrounds of our lives. The way for us to have peace and contentment isn't by turning to him only when we need him, but by being entrenched in his word and in relationship to him so that even when the vehicle gets damaged, We don't have to repair the tire ourselves or the vehicle, but we can trust in him. And as often is the case with this passage, this evangelist missed the mark in his thoughts about contentment by focusing inwardly. So in verse 10 it says, I have rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. So this leads me to my first point. In order to have contentment in Christ, We must have an attitude of gratitude. Paul was writing this letter from the church of Philippi while in jail in Rome. That was about the distance from New York to Chicago. But Epaphroditus brought word from Philippi, and Paul was sending him back to the church with a thank you note as an exhortation and encouragement to them, as shown in chapter 2 and the first nine verses here in this chapter. With Epaphroditus' arrival, at last Paul had gotten word from them again. Nearly 10 years had passed since he had left Philippi, and although they had sent him with gifts at his departure, he hadn't heard from them since. So enough time had passed that possibly he thought they'd forgotten about him or even given up on him. But Epaphroditus' arrival was a great source of encouragement to Paul. Just like when we may have fallen out of touch with those we love because of responsibility or distance, but in a sense... They, they pick up the phone or they call us, and our hearts are gladdened by the renewal of the relationship and based on the past nostalgia from past memories. And when it's the other person that actually reaches out to us, we have a great sense of care. And it's easy to trust that Paul means what he says here because we know he's writing from prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier, kept in isolation in small quarters, not able to move about, away from the people he loved, with no opportunity to minister or preach, 
And he's living off the bare minimals. And at the same time, he is awaiting his trial with Nero, possibly expecting to be executed. Yet, he is grateful. What brings him gratitude is that his heart is satisfied. It's not so much on account of the substance, nature, quantity, or quality of the gift they sent him, but because it is a thing of the Lord. He recognized that the Lord put it in their hearts to provide these gifts, and that the Lord not only gave them the ability, but the willingness of mind. And because what they did, they did for the sake of Christ. And to him as an apostle, in obedience to Christ. So the King James Version puts it this way. Now at last, your care has flourished for me again. It uses the words flourished again instead of renewed. This gives us a vision of the Philippians' care and their general state to that of trees. Now in the summer, trees are full of fruit and leaves, but in the autumn, they cast their leaves. In the winter, they're completely bare, but in the spring, they revive again, and their leaves come back and they bear fruit. So this reference would have been known to them as in Isaiah 61.3, it said, They shall be called oaks of righteousness, a planting to the Lord for the display of his splendor. And here even in Philippians 4.17, it says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He is saying that even though they went through a wintry period, now by showing their support, it's evidence of the bearing of their fruit and their flourishing again. He is happy and thankful to God to know that they haven't petered out as a church and that they're still healthy. And oftentimes we want to let it be known when we feel left out or discarded. But Paul is not holding the lack of hearing from them or them providing him gifts for 10 years against them. He does say once again or in other versions at last, but he goes on to make sure that it's clear that he's not finding fault. He is speaking empathetically as he says they lacked opportunity possibly because of the lack of accessibility as he was in jail, possibly because they were tending to other matters, or possibly because of their insufficiency as a church, as the Church of Philippi was known to be pretty poor. But he doesn't ask for an explanation or show any resentment. He is simply grateful for their present care. And one of the principles here we follow at Epiphany is to live woven. And we need to be grateful to the community that God has provided us to be in relationship with each other, to strengthen each other, to build each other up, and to edify each other. And this isn't just a social club. As Dave mentioned last week, this is a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And these are our helpmates, so we can be so thankful for God's provision of them in our lives. And it should make our hearts glad when we see growth in them as well. All right, back to the scriptures, verses 11 and 12. I don't say this out of need. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know what it is to make do with a little, and I know what it is to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. So my second point is this. In order to have contentment in Christ, we must learn the secret of contentment. So there's an old Buddhist parable that illustrates the truth that our current circumstances are always changing. And it's our outlook on those events that actually affects how we respond to the good times and bad. This story is known as the story of the Taoist farmer, or also described as a blessing in disguise. And it goes, There was once a farmer in ancient China who owned a horse. You are so lucky, his neighbors said, to have a horse to pull a cart for you. Maybe, the farmer replied. One day he didn't latch the gate properly, and the horse ran off. Oh no, this is terrible news, his neighbors cried. 
such terrible misfortune? Maybe, the farmer replied. A few days later, the horse returned, and with it, six wild horses. How fantastic. You are so lucky, his neighbors told him. Now you will be rich. Maybe, the farmer replied. The following week, the farmer's son was breaking in the horses, and one of the wild horses kicked out and broke his leg. Oh, no, his neighbors cried. Such bad luck all over again. Maybe, the farmer replied. The next day, the soldiers came into town and took all the men to fight in the war. But they left his son because of the broken leg. You are so lucky, his neighbors cried. Maybe, the farmer replied. So when we interpret a situation as an opportunity or disaster, it shapes our emotions and how we respond to that. But the story of the Taoist farmer shows us that we never really know how a situation is going to turn out or what else it could lead to. The fact is there is only what has happened and how we choose to respond. So listen up. For us, this means that our peace in any situation comes from learning to trust that God is in control and that he knows what he's doing. And that our peace and joy shouldn't be dependent on our current situation. Paul's contentment wasn't something that just came naturally. An easygoing personality may be something we're born with, but contentment must be learned. And the word here for learn is along the lines of going through trials, or more specifically, initiations. To come to the point where you learn to be content. When we think of initiation, we often think of joining fraternities or secret societies, and at the completion of the initiation, you're inaugurated into the secrets of that group. And in verse 12, it does describe it as the secret of being content. The meaning of the word content here, which is based on the Greek word autarkis, is as Pastor Derek mentioned a couple weeks ago, to be satisfied, to have enough, contain self-sufficiency, or to not want anything more. The imagery here is that of a saturated sponge, but not being saturated by things, but by the presence of the Lord. Again, when we think of contentment, the opposite disposition is that of anxiousness for things we might want. But Paul often warns not to be anxious, and he himself had also learned not to be anxious. In chapter 228, it says, I am the more eager to send you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So this is Paul admitting he experiences anxiety. But as often with Paul, he's not focusing inwardly. He's focusing again towards those he cares about. And later on, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is not coming out of a place where he doesn't know or hasn't experienced fear and anxiety. He understands the inroads of anxiety and the preoccupation with such things. And he doesn't want them to be uh, left in this disposition, but to be content and at peace. So what we can learn from Paul is here is even in a low state, we should not lose our comfort in God, nor distrust his providence, nor take any wrong course for our own gain. But on the other hand, in a properous condition, we are called not to be proud, secure, or worldly. This is often an even harder lesson than the first, as the temptations of fullness and prosperity 
can be more than those of affliction and want. Paul clearly distinguishes between being content with something and being content in something. He's learning not to be content with the world. He's learning to be content in the world. He's saying, I have learned to be content whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I have learned the secret of being content, not with any and every situation, but in any and every situation. In Psalm 139, it goes on to say, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Basically, what they're saying here is, here are the circumstances of my life. You know all my hopes, my fears, even my sins. Maybe you've just been diagnosed with difficult illness. Maybe you've lost your job or been removed from a position of power or influence. Maybe you had this career path you were hoping for, and now it's vanished. Maybe you had this, this guy or girl you were looking to marry and spend the rest of your life with, but now they, they've just left. But then we go back into verse 8. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And in verse 13, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So this says whatever my circumstances may be, or whatever I may be going through, those circumstances, which are inevitably changing, are to be viewed in the light of what is true of God. And what is true of God based on those verses? He made me, and he will hold me fast, despite how much pain I'm going through or how low I may currently feel. So then in verse 10, he also stresses that, he, again, he wasn't in need. Basically, he's saying, I don't want to give you the impression that I am in need. I am content with much or nothing. I don't need this stuff. And yes, friendship and food and financial support could help, but he didn't need it. He could survive without it. Still, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't give to the church because clearly we know that there are financial burdens and obligations that need to be met. And logistically, missions still need funding. But our giving should be sacrificial and not expecting to receive back in the worldly sense. But we will be blessed abundantly according to the riches in Christ, which is more than the expectation of worldly gain, but a future hope and treasure laid up in heaven. Unfortunately and often, we see examples of misuse, abuse, and exploitation when it comes to the request for giving and the use of these resources. Paul was unlike a lot of the evangelists today who want your money for themselves, who ride around in Rolls Royces or private jets, and sadly, if it impoverishes you or even is destructive to you, they could care less. They take every dime out of your pocket and leave you desolate. Jesus and the apostles demonstrated clearly that the objective of collecting offerings wasn't for their own personal gain, but for the benefit of others and for the spreading of the gospel, just as Paul emphasized. So this brings me to my last point. In order to have contentment in Christ, we must persevere in faith. That is, we must persevere in faith. And in verse 13 it says, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. And as we're going through this series of verses that are often misquoted, this verse here is one that's misquoted and splattered across all of pop culture. Sadly, while searching sermons on this topic, I saw some videos on verses and prayer for supernatural advancement of your finances. 
And then, of course, some references to sports. And as a boxing fan, I think back to the 90s. When facing Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield wore this verse across his belt. Basically, to him saying, I can do all things, man. He would beat Mike Tyson. And he did. But then later on, he used this again on his belt as he faced Lennox Lewis twice. The first of these was a controversial draw that, that most people thought Lewis won. And the second, he ended up losing and he lost his belt. So clearly, it didn't just mean he was going to win. And then later on, ironically, he also said that the Lord told him he would unify all the heavyweight titles again when he was well past his prime. And that clearly didn't happen either. So Tim Tebow is another athlete that people either seem to love or hate. But he's also well known for his outspoken stance on his faith and wearing eye black with this verse in white letters. And even Steph Curry writes this verse on his shoes and has signature shoes with this verse printed on it. While I respect these guys for their willingness to proclaim their faith, the use of this verse in reference to a sporting event seems to dilute the true meaning. To understand what Paul is saying here, we must again think of the context. He's writing from jail. So it isn't surprising that the book draws heavily on themes of humility and self-sacrifice. When you imagine Paul writing this letter in a dank first century prison, not exactly the new heights or expectations of the lofty desires people have for this verse, you already begin to feel uncomfortable with his popular interpretations. And as mentioned earlier, there are some individuals and groups who believe that putting your faith in Christ entails automatic financial blessing and favor, turning I can do all things into I can get all things. Their picture of an obedient Christian life is one full of happiness, wealth, and relative ease. And that simply isn't true. Take Paul's life, for example. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 21 to 30, he writes, and this is tagged as Paul's suffering as an apostle, Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they the servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm speaking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked, a day and a night adrift at sea, on frequent dangers, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, There's a daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Clearly, Paul went through a lot in the short time after his conversion. But what he's saying here in Philippians 4 is that God does want us to be content when things are good or if we're rich. But he also wants us to be content when we are poor or down. And not to come just to expect physical or material blessing because of our standing in him, but to have faith that whatever we have comes from the Lord. And as a sports fan, again, thinking about expectations, there's something called a a, a contract year. Contract year is when an athlete is in their final year of their current contract, and they decide to to play their best, to strive to perform their best so that their 
performance will be recognized and rewarded. And oftentimes we think we're crushing it for the Lord. We're putting forth it after effort. And we expect our faithfulness or discipline to be recognized or rewarded by God. But there's often a tendency for a lot of these athletes that they perform better than that year, they get that contract, but once their wallets have been fattened up, they become lazier, and then their, their performance falls off. But our God is wise, and he knows our hearts and our tendencies as well. And although sometimes we will be blessed, he doesn't want us to just get fattened up and haughty and then return to a relative lifestyle of comfort. So we shouldn't be pursuing the things of God for personal gain, but we should stay diligent and humble and persevere in our faith regardless of our blessings or difficulties. Along the lines of misuse, much of the prosperity gospel is meant to give hope to those who come to Christ, when in reality it can cause unnecessary doubt. If Paul, as an apostle, was not secure in his theology, he might have felt shame for these hard times. And sometimes we doubt our standing with God when things aren't going so well or what we deem as success isn't happening in our lives. Saying to ourselves, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Am I possibly out of favor with him because I'm not being blessed? Am I truly his? We often say to ourselves, I, if only I had this, I would be content. If only I got that job. If only I bought my own house. If finally I wasn't single. But truly, that way of thinking will never leave us content. Usually, when we get that thing, we realize after not long that we want or feel like we need more. And that that thing wasn't as valuable as we envisioned when we propped it up on a pedestal. It often happens when we forget how great our God is, and we settle for the created thing rather than the creator. As in Jeremiah 2.13, it says, Turning to broken cisterns instead of turning to him the true spring of living waters. And actually, any time a foundational view in our theology begins with, God will give you, we need to stop and do a double check. Lack of contentment is not something new, but we see it pervasively in our society today. Americans have more than ever before, but somehow are still more discontent than ever before. The average American house is larger than it's ever been. The average American diet has more calories than it's ever had. The life expectancy has increased. We have far greater understanding of mental health, more access in general, and supposedly more, uh, more connectivity. And yet we're lonely, bored, displeased, and discontent. Having more clearly isn't the solution. We often think we will cure our own discontent, but it's less about our effort and more about our faith in God's providence. If you're looking for spiritual contentment in having food or money or physical things, you won't find those things, and you won't find contentment in those things. There's an old Chinese proverb that goes, if you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. For a year, inherit a fortune. But to have happiness for life, go help someone. Paul's joy here isn't inward-focused, but focused on God and ministering to the lives of others. His need and sense of strength is directly related to his care for others, and that he had contentment, his contentment came from the gift of God in the loved ones, having the opportunity to proclaim the word of God, teaching and preaching the scripture. And when he saw the fruit of God's spirit manifest in the people he cared for, that was enough for him. His contentment was in others' growth, and in God's sovereignty. One last reason we can have contentment in Christ 
is that he is who he says he is. I remember when I was about 22 or 23, I happened to be leaving a bar and my vehicle was parked across the street. I hopped in and the next thing I know, somebody was trying to open my back door. I turned and looked and it was a couple and apparently they thought I was a taxi. Now, to their credit, I was driving a, a dark blue Dodge Caravan, which happened to be the same make, model, and color as the taxi service in that town. Anyway, I unlocked my door and let them in. And as they were getting in, I said, where to, boss? So without hesitation, they gave me the address. I told them that I was new to this taxiing thing and, and that they should give me directions as we went along. So clearly this was before the time of smartphones or GPS. But anyway, they started giving me directions until I realized where we were going and that I was actually headed in the direction of my own apartment. And once we were about halfway, I turned and said to them, laughingly, I don't know if you've realized this yet, but I'm not a taxi. And then I pointed out the fact that I had a laundry bag behind my seat and my entire middle seat of my van was out. They didn't really seem to mind too much. And when we finally got there, they did offer, me, offer to pay me, but I told them not to bother. The point of this story is that these people trusted me for something I was not. And oftentimes, we trust in things or people without any real grounds to. But our Lord said maybe the most powerful words ever spoken, I am. In those two words, he proclaimed himself as self-existent and the only true God. He is immutable, unstoppable, all-powerful, and unchanging, the solid rock on which we can stand. He created the heavens and the earth, and we can have peace, joy, and contentment knowing that he is our Savior. And he will work all things for good to the glory of his own purposes. And if he desires it for us, those things will be accomplished despite our circumstances. And our contentment is based on our faith in God because we already know he has provided for our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins by the sacrificial death and blood of Jesus. He who knew no sin, the Son of God, was sent to die to bear the burden and price of our sins, a cost we could not afford, so that we could be pardoned and not only have a future hope, but a current one in relationship with God the Father. You may have come today and not know Christ, but he has offered up his only son to give you the opportunity to claim those promises and be adopted into his family. And if you are interested in hearing more about joining his family or learning more about the next steps towards accepting that free gift, Feel free to see myself or Brother Dave after the service. Now, Lord, thank you again for allowing us to open up your word. Thank you for your free gift that you offer. Thanks for the sacrifice of your son. We pray that these words would not fall on deaf ears, but would reach to the heart and soul of those here today. Lord, help us to have contentment in you and to fully place our trust in you. In Christ's name.